Random Inks Productions presents the Credulous Nerds Podcast, hosted by Justin and Mark. We bring you the latest news and information from Star Wars to Star Trek, DC to Marvel, Harry Dresden to Harry Potter, Wheel of Time to Cosmere, and so much more. We podcast about anything and everything nerdy. Welcome, everyone, to the Credulous Nerds Podcast. As always, my name is Justin, and I have my co-host with me, Mark. Hey, guys. How's it going? And today we have a a different kind of show for y'all. We usually do uh, a rundown of the latest uh, events or news. Uh, Today we have an interview with an author, a prolific author, Michael Brent Collings. And just to let you know a little bit about him, he's here with us, and we want to give him some time to let us know kind of who he is and what he does and how long he's been doing it. So welcome to the show, Michael Brent Collings. Thank you guys. How are you doing today? Pretty good. And why don't you just kind of give us a rundown of, of who you are and what you do and how you, how long you've been doing it? Oh my gosh. That's a terrible question. I mean, it depends who you talk. If you talk to my wife, I mostly make messes and mistakes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, well, I, like you said, I'm an author. I've written close to 40 books. I may be a hit 40. I don't know. But, you know, I, I've written quite a few. Um, I'm an international bestseller. I've had top-selling books, um, a bunch in, like, the top 100 overall, and number one bestsellers in horror and science fiction and a bunch of other categories. And I've done that on Amazon and iBooks and Kobo and Nook and all, pretty much all the big e-platforms, and I've done it on multiple countries. So... Um, I, I'm a writer. I'm a guy who writes and I write, um, books and movies and, and, um, kind of about anything. I'm, I'm best known for horror, I think, but, uh, I have a, a, a nice fan base that kind of lets me do whatever I feel like. Uh, so, uh, they do kind of start emailing me when I don't do a horror novel for a long time. They're like, Hey, let's be scared again. But, <laughs> but, um, you know, I get to write whatever I want. So I've written horror, I've written science fiction, uh, thriller, fantasy, young adult stuff, urban fantasy, humor, mystery. I even, I write, uh, I even write Western historical romance under the uh, pen name Angelica Hart. So, nice. um, I'm kind of all over the place. Okay. And so we've known each other for about, uh, what's it been, 30 years, 35 years? No, no, no. <laughs> let's, stay, let's say 20 and we'll... <laughs> that's, that's a little age telling there, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm still, I'm only 19 years old, dude. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's been a, a bit since we've known each other. And for those of you who don't know... We both served an LDS mission together in Paraguay. There's a lot of scary things that happened there, a lot of exciting things. So, yeah. But back then, I I would have never have picked you as a, a horror fan or a an author who would write horror <laughs> novels. Of course, I didn't know you too well. We didn't spend too much time together, but you were always very pleasant to talk to and enjoyable. Well, like, <laughs> see, and that's a hallmark of somebody who's never spent that much time with me. I'm at, I'm actually thinking like, oh my gosh, I bet I bet ninety percent of my companions picked me as a serial killer. They're like, yep, that guy's gonna, that guy's gonna pop and kill people sooner or later. <laughs> yeah. So was horror something that was always 
kind of on your radar? Did you read it as a kid? How did you get yeah. into the genre? Um, so my father was literally the world expert on Stephen King for about 20 years. So nice. um, I grew up with him getting packages with, you know, the return postmark, Banger, Maine. And, and I grew up every night I'd go to sleep and, and I would hear typing in the next room or I'd hear screaming in the next room because he'd either be writing about a horror, you know, novel that he'd written or that he'd read, or he'd be watching a Stephen King movie to critique and review. And, and so, yeah, it's definitely something that kind of I have on my radar because uh, I grew up with it. So uh, a lot of people are like, oh, you must have had a messed up childhood. And I probably did, but, you know, that was not the catalyst for doing it. It was just, it's something I kind of understand. It was around and I read Stephen King, I think I started reading him by the time I was seven, and um, and it's it's just part of my uh, my genetic background at this point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you've written quite a few books. Uh, you mentioned 40 or so. Mm-hmm. And, but you also do screenplays. I, I find that yeah. very interesting. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I really love screenplays. Uh, a friend of mine brought... A uh, when I was in high school, a friend of mine brought a book to the English class, and and it was one of those classes where if you were, you know, pretty good at the class, you could get done early, and the teacher didn't care if you screwed around as long as you did quietly. So we're sitting in the back of the class, just you know, playing cards or something, mm-hmm. and he pulls out this book, and I said, "What's that?" And it turned out it was a bound copy of a screenplay because some. Some of the big movies, they'll package the screenplays as, as books and they'll put commentary in it or, mm-hmm. or um, maybe just the script and, and sell it to people who are like real hardcore fans. So, um, and this was, it was before the internet was right. a thing. So, yeah. you know, you couldn't just go online and get a script, but he pulled it out. It was a screenplay for Terminator 2 and I'd never seen a screenplay before. So I was like, oh, what's that? And he showed me and I was just really fascinated and I took it home and I read the script and he had a heck of a time getting it back for me because <laughs> I was just so fascinated. I mean, it was a great movie, but on top of it, it was just a cool thing I had never seen before. And, and so I kind of started making my own little mini scripts and showing them to people at school. And then I'd always wanted to be an actor when I was a kid, actually. Um, and I, you know, I did drama stuff and I had an agent and I went out on, inter- on you know, uh, on tryouts and stuff like that. But it was actually when I was a missionary, I kind of started thinking about it and going through the lifestyle of the average actor that I knew and thinking, you know, that's not really me, but um, I could certainly write stuff. And and so by the time I got home, it had really kind of fleshed out in my brain. I think I'm going to do writing. I mean, that's what I think I'd like to do. And, and screenplays were always a part of it from the very beginning. So, I mean, I, I will now my process is typically I'll write a book and as I'm writing it, I'll be writing the screenplay as well so that they kind of grow up together. A lot of people say, uh, Oh, your writing's really cinematic. It's like, it's a movie. And I, you know, and I, and I don't usually say, well, it's cause it kind of is. I mean, everything I write, I think about, Hey, will this work as a script? And if it doesn't, I mean, it, it, it's a lot less likely that I'll write it just because I like those processes working together. Mm-hmm. And screenplays a little are a little less descriptive than novels typically, um, and you compare that to some 
authors or most authors who are very descriptive in their writing. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's... It, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, they're different They're different formats. You know, they do different things. And, yeah. And um, it, it, people always go... It, it kills me whenever I hear, oh, it wasn't like the book. I'm like, well, that's stupid because it's a movie. It's not a book. And yeah. the one that, that drove me nuts was when people said, like, oh, go see World War Z. It's a good movie. I mean, it's not like the book. And I'm thinking... The only way they could have made that movie into a book, it would have been a $100 million Ken Burns miniseries about the zombie apocalypse. And and I don't know that anyone would have wanted to see that. And even if they had, I don't think it would have been profitable. I mean, $100 million on a miniseries uh, of that nature is a little tough to, to make work. So um, so it always kind of makes me laugh. But, but um, yeah, as, I, as I'm writing these together, it definitely they kind of infect each other. So... There is a, a sort of a, I don't know, a more of a lyric quality to a lot of my writing as a screenwriter. And, of course, my, my novel writing is a lot more uh, action-oriented, for lack of a better word. Not like necessarily explosions and people running away, although there is that. But, you know, there's a, a real focus on what people are doing and a lot less on, and now I'm going to spend nine pages, you know, with some character looking out the window at the, rain dappled glass thinking about their affair as they <laughs> sip chamomile tea you know it's, yeah, there's not a lot of those kinds of scenes because it's just not the way i i think about those things right yeah so i think it translates pretty well as a novel that your style uh i've read a lot of books growing up i was a, a fantasy reader uh-huh some sci-fi, but mostly fantasy. Uh, so I got into the, the big franchises, Lord of the Rings, uh, the, the Belgariad, you know, mm-hmm. all these you know, novels and epics that are three, four, five, and more books long. And mm-hmm. most, most notably, the Wheel of Time story. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that. Probably at least yeah. part of it. And that is kind of, you know, that's, his Robert Jordan style is kind of what you were alluding to, not maybe not specifically, but you know, there's pages and pages of characters thinking, and yeah, especially towards the end, the last few books uh, <laughs> before he passed on, the first uh-huh. you know four, five, six books were a lot of action, a lot of dialogue, stuff was happening, and then it kind of bogged down where you know it's a pair. What chapter is a couple conversations, but mostly just the characters thinking about what the other characters thinking. And so, yeah, 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 had, and that's <clears throat> oh, go ahead, Mark. Oh, sorry. No, I was like, yeah, you had a book there that was like uh-huh. a eight hundred page book that was about a day, one single day, <laughs> and uh, you got to read about snow, like yeah. on the ground. For ninety nine percent of it was it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you know, I, from what I understand, that series did okay. So you know, it must have <laughs> something, right? But yeah, it's. <laughs> It's funny because the reason that movies and books are different, is the, the thing that they do that is different is, is at their core, books are about a person and their conflict with themselves. That it, you know, Books are about internal stuff because yeah. they do show you their thoughts, and they are from the point of view of a character. And the movie is more about um, a character versus the outside world, which is why Twister, the novel, kind of sucks, you know? Um, <laughs> They're just designed to do different things, and it and and it, and they can get bogged down, and that's part of. I actually I loved the Wheel of Time stories for about five books, and then 
it did kind of, I, I started to get bored because it's like, okay, I, I've got a handle on these characters and, and, and they're not doing anything new internally, which is where it counts for a novel. I mean, there's things that are happening to them externally, but none of them are uh, surprising enough to the way these characters respond to interest me. And that's a, that's a real tough thing to do, especially with bigger series where the cast grows and grows and grows. And that's in TV or movies or whatever because um, everyone starts to have their favorite. I call it the Buffy the Vampire Syndrome because everybody starts to have a couple of favorites. And the problem is when the cast of characters is too huge, you're like, wait, I only got five minutes with Anya or only five minutes with Buffy. And that really sucks. And I'm, I miss them. And you have to spend more and more time on people you just don't care about. And eventually, it's a diminishing return. You know, Lost fell into that trap. Yeah. They had three or four really cool characters in the beginning. And then they developed four more really cool characters. And then ten more really cool characters. And at a certain point, you're like, wait, wait. I've got 60 people I'm supposed to keep track of. And I'm not spending enough time with any of them to actually care anymore. It makes it a real tough thing to... You know, anytime you're doing a long-form story, you know... A, a, a TV show with a long arc or a, a, a series like the wheel of time. And, you know, I'm not knocking the wheel of time. Cause like I say, I really enjoyed it for a while. It just, but it, it did for a lot of people. I know um, a lot of people loved it and hung with it and were upset that, it, you know, it took for, it literally took longer than a lifetime since Robert Jordan <laughs> yeah. died doing, um, and, but they love that. And that's cool. But it, it is definitely something you have to watch out for as an author, if you're doing a series is how do I sustain this interest? Yeah. Yeah. And the wheel of time is one of my favorite overall stories of all time. Uh, but I think when it's your favorite, you can be praising and critical of it at the same time. So, yeah. Um, but like you said, I agree with everything you say. It's, I think it just lasted probably three books longer than it should have. So. <laughs> well, and the problem too, is when you have something that popular, it's like in the beginning as an author, you have, your fans it will tell you if it sucks and yeah. you know or they won't you know you'll get ignored if it sucks now because anyone can publish you just click the publish button but right. the question is can you be read so most people their books suck and and they'll never be read or they you know if you go to a big publisher they've got a whole horde of people looking over your work and and making changes to it you kind of have to deal with that but you know after you've had your fifth or sixth mega hit i think they just there's a real problem because they start going more and more like, oh, okay, you can have this. And the authors, we all, authors are this just bizarre mix of total narcissism and cripplingly low self-esteem. So there's like <laughs> a part of us, no, it's serious. Every time somebody walks up and goes, I read one of your books, I, was, I literally, I take a step back because there's part of me that thinks this is the one that's going to punch me. This is the one that's going to like, you know, be really mad that I wasted their life. And and um, but at the same time, we think we've got this great point of view, and we're gonna share it and change the world. And so, a lot of authors, when they get more popular, they start fighting for that. Like, well, I want more control over the final product, and that's where you end up with people like, um, you know, Stephen King, who's still a great writer. I mean, he's he is still a great writer. But I also think there's a little less editing that goes on there because people are just gonna say, hey, every time this guy writes something, it turns into money, so just take it and print the money. Yeah. And um, and I definitely think that even him, who is you know this accomplished, genius, master writer, I think he could probably be benefited by some junior person at, you know, at 
at whatever big publisher he's at now, looking at it and not knowing Stephen King and coming back with notes and saying, well, this was really long-winded. This didn't make any sense because his books have, have definitely um, destabilized a little bit as far as the overall quality control. And again, I'm not saying they're bad because bad Stephen King is still better than most. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he's got a, a lot fewer books where I just read them and can't stop. You know, most of them... Now I can go, that was really good, but I'll put it down for two weeks in between finishing. And that's, that's, not, a great, that's not a great thing if you're not one of those megastars. Because in today's market, putting down a book for two weeks, that's an eternity. Someone's never coming back to that book. Yeah. So with, with these uh, editors and book companies, how much say do you think they have in, you know, hey, you got to write so many books and, you know, we need this much from you and... And the author, do they push back, or do you have any insight oh, yeah. on that process? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I'm not so I'm not a traditionally published, but most of my you know successful friends are, and, and it kind of depends again where they are, um, both in terms of in their career and actually which publisher they're working with. So some publishers are a lot more hands off. I know Larry Korea publishes through uh, Bain Books, and Bain is like a kind of like a mini major studio. It's not one of the big top huge ones but it's a it's a it's a big deal and they do a lot of business and Maine is very uh nurturing to authors from what i understand and they provide a lot of editing and feedback but it's it's all pretty uh kind you know and it really is with an aim to hey let's do this together and make some money uh-huh. but at the same time they don't sink a lot of money into authors either it's not like you're not going to get a million dollar uh contract or a million dollar publicity run with Bain. You know they're gonna they're gonna throw your work out there and see if it connects and if you're willing to hustle for it, and and if you are, then they'll make money and they'll they'll hire you again. You know they'll buy your next book and and more and more publishers are becoming like that. They are willing to interject less, but that's because they're willing to risk less. So kind of gone are the days where they snap up a bunch of books and give them each a huge publicity budget. It's like I had a friend who, who published with a major publisher and he called about six months before it was scheduled to be published, like to go out into the street and be read. And he, and he had a conference call and he basically said, so what's the publicity budget going to be for this? And their response literally was, well, I don't know, whatever you're willing to spend. Yeah. Yeah. So that was he ended up using a lot of his frequent flyer miles to uh-huh. <laughs> zip all over the country, kind wow. of you know, just shilling this book. And he's becoming very much better known now, and I really think he's going to explode in popularity uh, in the next year or two. But but um, it just it really depends how you do it and which which group you fall into, and it's kind of luck of the draw, which is part of why I've stayed with indie writing. I mean. Don't get me wrong, I'm a huge whore, so if somebody offered me the right money or the right deal, I would take it. Right. But, um, so many of them now, it really is. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll publish you, meaning we'll put your book on a shelf, but you're going to sell it. And I'm kind of like, well, if I'm going to do all that work, I might as well take home a bigger royalty. Yeah. Yeah. So here on The Credulous Nerds with, with all our guests... We, we like to talk a little bit about kind of their nerd cred. And, you know, when, did, when did you become a nerd? How long have you been a nerd? You know, what are you a nerd about? So you know, tell us a little bit about your nerd cred. 
How long have you, oh. how long have you been a nerd? If you are, I, well, maybe you're too you know, cool I've for, kind for of the nerds. From birth. I mean, again, my. No, no. See, that's the thing. Is like nerds are cool today, and that still boggles me. It really does. Because, <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, being a nerd was not a good thing. Nobody was like, "Yeah, I'm a total nerd about that." I mean, that was like walking up and saying, "Yeah, can you punch me in the crotch a bunch of times?" <laughs> yeah, that just it wasn't a good idea. Um, and I was a nerd from birth. I mean, I learned to write very young, read and write. I mean, I was reading by the time I was four. And I was writing very early. And so when I got to school, everybody else was doing their ABCs and I'm in a chapter book. And, and people thought that was weird and they didn't like it. And then my dad was an English professor and he was not a fireman. He was not, you know, uh, an astronaut or a spy or anything cool like that, you know, cool being the perception as kids. So yeah. I was this smart, dorky guy who also weighed like, three pounds until I was in high school <laughs> and I was definitely a nerd. I loved Saturday morning cartoons. Everybody else in, in kindergarten did these art projects with macaroni and I kept showing up with life-size cutout pictures of the super friends from nice. Justice League, which, nice. my, which my teacher did not know what to do with. She's like, uh, thank you. And you know, she hung the first one up, which is a huge mistake because soon all the super friends start showing up on the walls and, and, um, so I've always been like that. And I'm just really glad now it's kind of, it really is nerds have come into their own and it's kind of a cool thing. But I also have, I also have that, like, uh, that first owner feeling like, you know, people are like, Oh, we're total nerds. And I'm sitting there going, you're not a nerd. You don't know what a nerd is. Yeah. I'm a nerd. You know? <laughs> I was a nerd before it was cool to be. A yeah. Nerd. Like, have you ever been put in an actual trash can? Not a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> So That's I've always awesome. I've always loved that stuff though. I've always loved movies and I've always loved books and and there were, I did have stuff that that made my life a little challenging in some respects and um, mental health issues don't really run in my family. They just they sort of gallop, you know, swinging their <laughs> arms wildly and beating things to the ground. So there were some problems with that and 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 I had some issues not at home but at at in other places as well and. Uh, and it made life tough. And so having a book that I could fall into and, and not be me for a couple hours or a really good movie that made me forget what was happening around me, that was, that was always a treasure. So I think for me, like for a lot of nerds my age, I don't think nerding was a good thing or even a choice. It was just, hey, this is the way I am, not as a social statement, because there was it was not a good social statement back then. It was just but this is what I like. I like, I like imaginary stuff. Yeah. So what, what were some of your favorite franchises or properties growing up? Oh, gee. Where are well, some now? Um, I loved Star Wars as a kid. I literally, the first Star Wars movie, I can remember that as one of my early, early, early memories is going to the release when I was like two years old in the drive-in and not understanding what was happening. Um, just my parents being really upset because like, uh, you know, I was eating really slow and the baby, my baby sister was not happy. And they're, you know, I can remember them talking, maybe we're not going and me going, no, I want to go and not even knowing what we're going to. <laughs> and then seeing Star Wars and just on this big screen outside my car and just feeling like this is the greatest TV show I've ever seen. And, um, and not really understanding the difference between movies and TV shows, but just loving it. So 
I loved all the Star Wars movies growing up, and I saw A New Hope. We got it on video eventually, and we wore the videotape out. I saw it over a hundred times, and um, and so I just ate it up. And then, of course, the prequels came out, and I, I remember going to see the, the first prequel, and it was like going to Mission Impossible. I mean, my friends and I had a buddy at the theater, and, and we're in Los Angeles, so like people are more jazzed about movies in places like Los Angeles, and there's this line that's been out there for a day and a half. And so my friend snuck us into the theater and we had to do like super stealthy mission impossible evasion of the theater management to get into the theater. And, and we got in there and it was the greatest thing of my whole life. I mean, like the Lucasfilm thing comes up, the logo and everyone's cheering. We watched this amazing movie. It was so good. And I went back the next night and I watched it again and I felt like crying because I realized it was a terrible movie. I had just been so caught up in like the, the fact that there was Star Wars, you know, I had forgotten to actually watch the movie. So the next night when I saw it with a friend, I sat there and I left. I couldn't handle it. It was so bad. <laughs> um, so that was one of the big things, and I loved um, Star Trek. I grew up on that. I've seen all the original episodes, and and remember begging my parents to to have dinner in the front room, which was you know a big thing for us, so that we could watch a Star War or a Star Trek rerun. And and um, I loved those. I loved Battlestar Galactica. You know, Dirk Benedict Starbuck was just the epitome of cool. And yeah. and then I and then I really loved superheroes. Superman is still. Christopher Reeves' Superman is still my favorite uh, movie superhero of all time. And I hate the sad, whiny sack of crap they've turned Superman into now. Um, because he is. He's, like, become this... He seems like he'd be better off in whatever the high school was in Beverly Hills 90210, where it's just about overprivileged people with way too much authority and power who just constantly whine about the difficulty of their lives. <laughs> that's a good point I've, I've never seen it like that that's uh, a good point yeah, he literally like he I mean think about it he literally goes to his old ship in Man of Steel and he's like dad things aren't working out for me you know all he needed was like some friends in a, in a really expensive car dad the kids are waiting the Flash is being mean and he doesn't know my dad's more important than his dad like it was just I, oh, I hated it. I was so upset. So you're not a fan of the new Justice League movies? No. I, in fact, I, every time I see Zack's name on anything, I'm afraid because he ruins everything. I mean, the Watchmen movie was so horrible. He took one of the most amazing comic books of all time, or graphic novels or whatever you want to call it. I don't have a you know, preference on that. So I just call them comic books, even though that upsets people. But anyways, he took this amazing comic book, this groundbreaking thing that really kind of took apart the superhero idea. Um, and he did it shot for shot and he managed to make this amazing thing into a joyless, horrible travesty. And so the only movie he did that was in, and then the 300, you know, that was like beautiful, but it was a beautiful train wreck. It was a supermodel. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing that was stupid. And I uh, just everything he's done, I hated. The first thing that he that he did that I really liked was um, he did a Dawn of the Dead remake, and that was really good. But that was before he got a budget, so maybe the secret is keeping him out of anything with a hundred million dollar budget. And and I could be totally going off the wrong end. I mean, he could have stuff that's outside his control, or you know, the studio does get into it a lot. I don't know. But I and he's a beautiful 
his movies are beautiful. They're all gorgeous. Um, and people go to see him for a reason. Um, so there's a lot of talent there and I'm not like going to be one of those people who's like, he's an idiot or, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing, but his aesthetic takes over. And, and I think he's such a visual person. He does focus less on the story than I like. Yeah. So back to Star Trek, um, what's your favorite Star Trek series? Oh, it's definitely the originals. I mean, I watched you know, like Next Generation, and honestly, the rest of them after Next Generation kind of all mixed together in my head. Um, and, and they had good episodes and everything, but there was just the dynamic between Kirk and Spock and Bones was just so perfect. And, and I really, I like the new movies. I mean, there's a lot of people who hate them, especially like hardcore fans who have real problems with them. And I get that if you're comparing them to the first series on a story level, there there's a lot less subtlety they are much more big hollywood action movies um but i like big hollywood action movies and they did keep that core relationship between jim and spock and bones and and i love that that kind of you know especially bones i think carl urban in the new movies he nails it i mean that guy knocks it out of the park just with this kind of angry, irritable guy who has been a codger since the day he was born. Yeah. And, um, and so I love the originals definitely are my favorite, but I really, I'm liking what they're doing with the new ones. And, and I, I know the last movie, it was not nearly as good as the first two. And the marketing was abysmal. It was a total drop opportunity, especially cause it was, it came out in the 50th fricking anniversary of the original star Trek. And nobody even mentioned that. So um, I'm really curious to see how they're going to move forward. I've met the guy who's writing the fourth uh, movie. Uh, he's actually LDS, too. Uh, and, and he's a really cool guy, and he's got a lot of good ideas. So I'm, I'm really hoping that the fourth one will you know, kind of get him back on track, because I really like the first two, and the third one left me a little bit cold. So here's hoping. Yeah. Now, Mark's a big Star Trek fan, and more so than I. I like it. But he's, he's, I think he's seen every episode, every movie. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I love, I, I grew up uh, watching The Next Generation in my, you know, in my living room when, when it was hard to watch TV in your living room because you, you know, right. yeah, the, the rabbit ears and everything else like that. But uh, uh, I remember watching all of them and I just loved it. I watched all the old ones and, and they, they were dated for me, and that's funny to say, right, in the 80s. I'm like, man, these, oh, totally. these are dated, right? But, uh, oh, no. Uh, it, you know, I, have to, I have to explain to my kids because, like, I started showing it to them, and I had to give them a preamble, like, okay, guys, the acting in this is weird. because, And I had to explain, these are people who are coming. I mean, stage acting was really where TV actors were coming from. And so they're acting for the back row to a camera that's six inches away and it looked weird. And, and I get that. So I kind of, I will pre prep them and go, you have to look past the fact like captain Kirk, whenever he's in pain, it's awesome. He looks like he's having explosive diarrhea and (laughs) the kids don't understand what's happening until I say, so this is acting. If you're in a, in, in a theater and the person in the back row has to see that you're in pain, you have explosive diarrhea face because that's a very visible pain look. And, um, and so, yeah, it is dated. It's totally dated. And, and, and again, I think that's why I do the thing I glommed onto is that relationship because I was too young 
to look at it and go, whoa, those phasers look like real lightning laser bolt things. Because they don't. They look to me like plastic toys that somebody hand drew an animated laser beam that went out of them, you know. And, um, but, but there's no, whether you're looking at special effects or not, there's that, that triple friendship in it that just makes the whole series run. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, it's, <clears throat> it, it, that's a great explanation, you know, for people to know. And, and it just changed, you know, and, and I remember just watching the first start, you know, the next generation and I really got into it. I loved it. I mean, I <clears throat> probably was in the backyard firing my laser beams and asking Scud to beam me up, like, you know, just nonstop. My dad probably thought I was weird and, but you know, whatever, I loved it. And, uh, um, I got into the next ones and for me, the next generation is just, I just love it. And I have to say, I like it more in star Wars. Uh, not that I don't like star Wars. I love star Wars. Uh, you know, the idea and everything it brings, but yeah, the next, uh, just Star Trek is is me. I, I love it. I'm a Trekkie. I <laughs> I just I can't say enough about it. Really, <laughs> you know. I think I think Star Wars is the universe most people would prefer to visit because it's exciting and it's adventuresome. And I think Star Trek is the place most of us would prefer to live because it's noble and it's hopeful. Um, you know, Star Wars is all about the rebellion and all about overthrowing the man. You know, and there's so there's cool fights and. There's cool weapons and ragtag teams of this or that. And, and in Star Trek, it's got most of the Star Treks have a nice core assumption that the man turns out to be us and we get our crap together. And now we're going to go out and do what humans should be doing, which is finding things that are beautiful and making them more beautiful. And of course, you know, Captain Kirk, yeah, he does spend most of his time running and gunning because. It wouldn't be a great show otherwise. It's not too exciting to sit there and talk about philosophy. Um, but that's the the stories were all kind of excuses. At their best, they were talking about philosophy. They were discussing important things, and that's one of the other things that made the first Star Trek. You know, it really it was beyond the others. I think the Next Generation, I would say, was was really up there too. Um, but every succeeding uh, series that they put out was a little bit less about Star Trek, which was about Star Trek was about let's go to the stars and out in the stars, we will realize what we are. Um, and each succeeding episode was more about let's go to the stars and blow stuff up real good. And so uh, that's another reason the first episodes and the next generation episodes are the ones that are more indelible in people's minds. And if you ask other people, well, what do you think about, you know, the, Deep Space Nine, or what do you think about um, Enterprise, you know, the newest one? Uh, people are going to go, what was that again? Which one was that? Um, yeah. and, and it's because they're just more generic. They're more, they're more studio features and less thoughtful processes, which is too bad because, again, Star Trek has a universe that, that is so full of, of real hope, and that's something that we, I think we need more of today. Yeah, have you watched the new Star Trek Discovery series on CBS, the CBS app? Yeah. No, and that and that's part of the problem too. Yeah. Is like, yeah, yeah I'm I, I've totally I'm a cord cutter. I, if it's not on Netflix or Hulu, I'm not going to see it. You know, my parents have cable. It's funny. I'll go over to my parents to work once a week, and that's so I can see the current episode of The Walking Dead. Um, <laughs> they think it's they think it's because I like them. But, uh, you know, I'm just waiting for the inheritance. But they've, had, they've got cable, so I'll go and spend time with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm we haven't watched. 
We haven't watched <laughs> Discovery either because of that. Yeah, it, well, and it's it's just nobody seems to care. You know, they're not they're not marketing it. Um, they market the movies because those are events. Yeah. And this is another thing. Even you know, TV marketing has become event marketing. They're marketing things like movies, which is part of why we have binge marketing campaigns. It's like Netflix doesn't want you to watch The Punisher over four weeks. They want you to watch it the first day and talk about it at the water cooler the next day. And then the next week, there's another big thing they want you to binge. And it's it's all become a very focused, watch it now, watch it now approach. And, and again, that does not lend itself well to the original ideas of Star Trek, which were measured and we're going to explore. And you can't explore something if you're running through it so fast you don't see any details. Yeah, yeah I can agree with that. Um, and we started right, watching well, Lost in Space last night. Oh, yeah, was that any good? Yeah. I heard it's pretty good. I'm going to actually, I heard it, like, I heard it was coming, and I went, oh, yeah, because we need that. But, you know, there's a lot of good buzz about it, so I'll probably check it out. Yeah, the, the first episode was amazing. I, I stayed really? up until it released, because uh, it releases at 1 a.m. where we are. So I stay, uh-huh. stayed up and watched it, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, that was amazing. And I wrote a little wow. review on it on our, our page. and I, Wow. It was pretty, pretty in pretty good it really did catch me i was like oh yeah i've got to watch the next one awesome netflix has turned into a really good sci-fi market yeah Mm-hmm. definitely a it's of, uh, a lot of stinkers but they've got some good stuff too yeah yeah i, m- I remember was it bright bright came out and it yeah, I remember I liked it. I mean, I, there were some definite holes in it, and uh, we, we <laughs> talked about it on a on a thing, but on a podcast. But I liked it, and they're making some more, so it'll be interesting to see if they can yeah. make it good. That was like one of the most appallingly poorly received movies that's ever been greenlit for a sequel that fast. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, they- yeah. I think it felt well for me. One of the huge failings of it was there was just no context. You know, it was uh-huh. just like you're supposed to accept this world that is, you know, is how it was written. You know, where everyone's living together. You know, elves are real, blah blah blah. But there's just no context. There's just here you go. Here's a big piece of steak. I hope you feed on that real well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I could probably buy. I read the script because I don't. I don't actually watch a lot of. Uh, MA stuff, rate of mature stuff, just not like as a judgment against people who do, just it sets up too much crap in my head, and I already have enough weird stuff in there, so, um, <laughs> but I'll read the scripts, and, and um, yeah, and I read it, and I was like, I, I'm really curious what business, how Netflix's business model works, I mean, I know they're worth so much money, but at the same time, tossing the movie out there onto a subscription service for 90, um, $90 million movie plus advertising, like I just, I'm curious how that pays off on the back end. Yeah, yeah. That that's a good question. That's that, on, on top of no everything idea. else they're doing with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're snapping up properties like crazy to yeah. the point that they're like highlighting really terrible stuff. I mean, I watched uh, the new that Cloverfield incident, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is awful. So. <laughs> They're just spending money like crazy. I'm just really curious. You know, they're 
they can't be exploding anymore versus, you know, as far as subscriptions are concerned. I mean, maybe in other countries, but here they've got to be reaching saturation point. Yeah. Yeah. I think now it's all about taking from Hulu what they can, you know? Oh yeah, totally. But you know, that's gotta be like, that's gotta be like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger arm wrestling me. It's, it just can't be a big competition at this point. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, it, but Hulu does like everything it can. It's like it's partnering with everybody, yeah, right? stars and everybody, just to try to stay afloat. But, but like you said, it's just at some point they're gonna just have to start, you know, being really picky. You just can't do anything and everything. But yeah. you know, you get things like Stranger Things that just explodes and it justifies what they do. Yeah, although those guys are being sued since somebody's claiming they stole the story. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I wonder how that's going to play out. I don't, usually, if it's this high profile, it usually ends with some money because it's just cheaper to pay it than litigate, usually. Yeah, and they don't want the bad press either. Yeah. So we, we reconnected at Salt Lake Comic Con a couple of years ago. And yeah. And you've been a regular there. Um, mm-hmm. Love that place. Yeah. So, have you been to any other conventions? And how does Salt Lake um, Comic Con compare to those? And which one's your favorite? Would you say? I have. I have. I've been to other ones. I've been to San Diego Comic Con, and um, not as a guest there, uh, but as you know, just a person walking around. And I've been to Mile High Comic Con in Denver, and a couple others. They, you know, I they don't. When you're doing this as a job, like if I've other than San Diego Comic Con, which I went to with a buddy because he was getting an award, um, so he was like, "Hey, you want to go to this Comic Con?" And I went, "Sure." You know, other than that, I've literally never gone ever to a convention as just a person. I'm always there as an author, as you know, a panelist or a special guest or whatever it may be, yeah. and um, and that makes it a lot different, and it makes them all kind of a lot more the same because you're going to go to the green room and you're going to see the same people you saw, you know, a month ago at this other convention, because we all make the the rounds to all these conventions. And, and that's part of what it is to be in this field anymore. You don't just sit in your room and you write stuff. You, you get out there and you talk to people. And, um, so they're not, they're not easily distinguishable as conventions. That is, I don't go, Oh, mile high had this, that, or the other thing. What I will say is, Oh, I remember meeting, you know, C.J. Henderson at Mile High, and we talked at com- about Community for three hours, you know, the TV show Community, or, oh, you know, I met the guy who is the voice of, of Edward in Full Metal Alchemist at FanX in Utah, and that was awesome, and, and he was really cool, you know, so it becomes more about the people that are operating behind the scenes, um, and on that level, I, I definitely saw like Comic-Con's my favorite, because all of my really good author friends are always at that Comic-Con. And, um, and I know a lot of the people who actually put that con together and they're just cool folks. The, the, I got in on the ground floor and I was a little less established as an author, but man, I knew I was going to be at comic con because the guy who put together the panels, I'd been friends with them for like five years. And so I I was pretty sure I was going to get on a panel or two there. And, and sure enough, I think I was on like 12 that first year. I mean, it was, I was running around like a crazy person. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I love the Salt Lake Comic Cons. And another thing that's nice is the people, you know, 
whether you like Mormons or not, there's there's some good things about them, and this is one of them. So I have really bad back problems, and so I have pain pills, and they're the kind of pain pills that you know you drop them in Los Angeles, you're not seeing them again. Well, I dropped them, and I'm looking around for my my pain pills all day, and I figure, you know, I'm at a convention with a hundred thousand people, they're gone. And the next morning, I went to my where I had a table set up with my books and stuff. And I had my chair and sitting on my chair in the middle of it with a little, you know, like a little note next to it so I could see it. There were my pain pills. And um, you're not going to have that happen in a lot of major metropolitan areas. So that, that was kind of yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So Mark and I have been to a couple conventions. We went to New York Comic Con and then we've been to Salt Lake Comic Con. And then I've been to Star Wars Celebration. And as far as uh, conventions mm-hmm. go, Salt Lake's pretty good. Uh, I think their biggest issue, at least up to this point, has just been growing pains, right? The, their first year, they exploded. There were over 100,000 yeah. people, and you know they were just new to the game. And so there was a lot of disorganization and just kind of getting to know how things work. And I don't really fault them for that yeah, because it just exploded in their face in a good way. So... I think they're yeah. kind of catching up with that and figuring things out. Um, but as, yeah. as far as guests, I think that they struggle a little bit with guests. There is a good author uh, representation there at Salt Lake Comic Con. I do appreciate that. But as far as like famous guests, um, it, it does seem to be kind of the same group that's doing the Comic Con circuit like you had mentioned earlier. If you if you see what's going on at Wizard World and Phoenix Comic Con, that's pretty much who we're going to get at Salt Lake yeah. Comic Con. Yeah. So, so what do you think, in your opinion, like how would they get like a Ben Affleck or a Robert Downey Jr., you know, someone like that? What's Do you know anything about well, that process? You know, the problem with that is they're, they're not going to, and that's the answer, is because the, there's two kinds of people that are guests at Comic Con, and there's people who are on the CW, or people who are in shows that are very popular with the 18 to 49 bracket that advertisers love. And those people go to Comic-Cons because they can make a quarter million dollars in a weekend. I mean, yeah. with the, with the um, they're not necessarily going to get paid to go to the Comic-Cons, but you're, there's someone's, people are going to stand in an eight-hour line to shake their hands and take a picture. And the person is going to make... $50 per picture and $50 per handshake. And so those people go to all those Comic-Cons because it is actually their salary. I mean, there are people on some of these shows that make more glad-handing at Comic-Cons every year than they do actually on the show. And so those people are going to be there no matter what. Um, then there's the the sort of A-list actor who is an A-lister by virtue of having been in the business for 100 years. And that's your... You know your Patrick Stewart's and and your uh, you know your your other captain of the Enterprise, William Shatner, people like that, and they go to conventions because they're semi-retired, and if they feel like going to a convention, they can. And again, they're going to make a million dollars and and go home happy. Yeah. And the the problem is your current A-listers, your Ben Affleck or your Robert Downey Jr., people who are in the big tentpole movies today, they don't go to these comic cons because their entire life is scripted out. Um, I used to live across the street from um, a, a gal whose brother was a movie star. 
Um, and she, he did the Need for Speed movie, and she said he made a lot of money, and he's never going to work for Disney again because every single minute of his life was totally itineraried for six straight months, and he had no universe of his own. So it, Disney is scheduling your movie. You know, Disney owns Marvel and Star Wars, so Disney knows how to market. And they're going to say, we are going to create buzz. We're going to take the entire cast to Comic-Cons in major urban areas, and they are going to talk as a cast. You know, you don't see John Boyega talking at a Comic-Con. You see the cast of Star Wars talking at Comic-Cons. And so they're not going to disperse their cast to Gladhand because it's not about John Boyega. It's about... It's about this big panel of people who are Star Wars. And they're only going to do that at major urban centers, which is why you see them at New York or Los Angeles or London or places like that. But you're not going to see them in Salt Lake City because Salt Lake City is, you know, technically it's a it's an urban center, but it's a Utah urban center, which is just does not have the population density to support that kind of buzz. Yeah. So it all comes down to the the studio and how much money they can get, you would say? Yeah, well, it, how much... Because they, they're not trying to get money for these Comic-Cons. They're creating re, uh, pre-release press. Okay. And, you know, all of the newspapers have people. All of the major websites have people. There are people from the New York Times, from Ain't It Cool News, from Fangoria, from all of the major kind of players that, that are the gatekeepers of information. All those people are in Los Angeles. All those people know about San Diego Comic-Con, and they can go from L.A. to San Diego. It's a three-hour drive. Those people do not have satellite offices in Utah, and Disney knows that. So they're they're not there for the fans. You know, Disney is there to make money. And that's not to say they don't, you know, that the movie makers, the actual, like, you know, the Russo brothers who made Infinity War, those guys, I think they know what the fans want. Those guys have put together some dynamite movies. I mean, Thor Ragnarok was so good. Um, and so there's a lot of those people that really are fan boys at heart yeah. um, or fan girls at heart. But as far as you get into the studio system and they are making money and they're going to look at maximizing their their you know profit to expenses. So they're not going to send the whole cast of Star Wars to Utah because those people, that cast of Star Wars, is going to talk to a standing-room-only crowd in the biggest amphitheater in the Salt Palace at Salt Lake City, and there's going to be 10,000 people there and no news crew, which means they flew everybody out for 10,000 people who were going to see the movie anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so shifting gears, we talked a little bit about uh, the Wheel of Time, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to like, uh, multi book series, uh, epic fantasy, that type of thing, the dark tower, uh, recently came out on, on, on film last August and it didn't do too well. And you're a, a Stephen King aficionado. And I was, I had heard things for quite some time, a couple of years now that they were going to do a dark tower franchise. That was going to be multiple. Yeah. There's multiple books now, but they were going to do a TV show, a movie, and they were all going to tie together to create this yeah. multimedia experience. But that's, I don't know. Have you heard anything about that? Did that fall apart? Which it kind of seems oh, yeah. like it has. 
Yeah, that totally fell apart, and it fell apart years ago. And, and here's the thing: it's funny because they ended up doing kind of a kind of a dumb movie with Idris Elba, whom I, I adore. I mean, that's my man crush. Yeah. Um, and Matthew McConaughey, who you know, he was a good choice for the walking dude, I think. Yeah. Um, but it was a mediocre movie, and it was number one. Which they made a big thing about it being number one on the at the box office, but it was a really weak. Um, you know, there's nobody out there, and it only made I think 19 million dollars that weekend, which you know is a lot of money to you and me, but for the studio, they, yeah, that's, that's not a good return. So, um, I would say that project is absolutely dead if it weren't for the fact that a year later it went on to be the top-grossing horror movie of all time. <laughs> um, and so, well, Stephen they're doing King the the TV had, show. Yeah, yeah, you? they're doing that again, and. Um, there, there's a stand, there's another version of the stand in the works and, um, you know, Stephen King has like nine movies on Netflix right now that are original Netflix movies, you know? And, and, um, so he's going through this kind of golden age resurgence between that and Hulu's been good to him with, uh, um, under the dome series and the, uh, 11, And so I think if someone had pitched the dark tower as kind of a big, media tie-in today it might have worked it might have actually gotten the attention it needed um but that thing was in development for 20 years i mean ben affleck was attached to direct and be in it and ron howard was going to direct it at one point it was just it was it's been through so many iterations and the problem is it's not a good movie it's got too many like we were talking about it's got too many internal themes and if you read that series you know there ain't a lot of action in it i mean there really isn't it is true it's a very philosophical story. And that's, again, that's not something that lends itself to a movie um, that's going to bring in a million people. There's no laser swords. There's no epic battles between good and evil that play out in, you know, in interstellar warfare. It's just, it is really about a person's quest. And it's a very personal quest. And, um, and plus, just some of the stuff that happens in the last book would be too too hard to get onto onto the movie screen and have it make sense <laughs> yeah yeah so do you have a, a wheel of time type story or project or you know something like this dark tower dream project do you have anything like that going on or like of my stuff yeah um, or do you want to do something like that at some point no i'm not you know i so i've written a couple of series i wrote a middle grade series called billy messenger of powers and I wrote um, a zombie apocalypse series called The Colony Saga, and I have another series called The Sword Chronicles that's that's still ongoing. And and I like them, but I'm not someone who wants to play out the whole universe. The whole universe doesn't fascinate me. I mean, I, I like reading about it sometimes. I loved reading The Stand, um, but when I wrote as an apocalyptic series, The Colony, it was very, very focused. It the whole story is about this group, this six or eight people. Um, and I think it's up to 10 at most. Um, and it's usually a lot smaller number because people die off very quickly. Um, and it's about, it's about a family. It's about a family unit and how it extends to encompass other people. And and family dynamics interest me a lot more than geopolitics. So I don't have a series that is a, an encapsulation of, of our times. You know, the, the thing Stephen King was very famous for was capturing kind of the world of the 70s and the 80s. And that's not me. I'm, 
I'm about capturing these four people in this horrible situation and how will they deal with it. Okay. So what, what projects or what books are you working on now that you can talk about? Um, right now I'm, I'm working on an, another middle grade series that's a lot of fun. Uh, it's called, tentatively, it's called uh, The Infinity Cycle is the series name, and the first of them is called Death of the Immortals. Hmm. And it is about these two kids who um, find out that their brother and sister, they were separated at birth intentionally by their parents. And they discover that they are born to be immortals, that there's, there's 500 people in the world who are immortal from the point of view they can potentially live forever. They never do, because after a couple millennia, they get weird, and they either kill themselves or they try and take over the universe, and other people kill them. And, and, um, but as soon as one immortal dies, another one is born. And these two kids are the born immortals kind of of their generation. Mm-hmm. And the problem is they, um, they are, they have immortal parents and that's not supposed to happen for a variety of reasons that will, will be gotten into as the series goes on, but they're kind of, they're kind of anathema. And so the immortals are after them to kill them. And there's also, um, other forces at play that are trying to, um, reshape the world of the immortals and, take it from kind of the shadows where it's existed into becoming the dominant life form. And, um, it's a lot of fun. It's got, it's got a lot of humor because I am a Star Trek person. Um, there's these steampunk robots in it who look like adult sized marionette puppets. They're really creepy. And they all talk like Captain Kirk, the original William Shatner. <laughs> they, have, they have kind of that cadence, like you will come with us, you know, and, and, and that's a lot of fun to write, you know, steampunk Captain Kirk and, and, um, and it's a science fiction thing. So there's not magic, but the, the whole thing with the immortals is their brains operate on a totally different level. So though there isn't magic, there's technology that is essentially the same. I mean, these kids have visited, um, so far in the book, they've visited Atlantis. They've been to the center of a nuclear reactor because that's where the immortal who used to be known as Jupiter lives. He, he, you know, he likes fire. He likes lightning. So he tends to live in nuclear reactors. Um, and, and that one's a lot of fun. I'm having, I'm having a really good time writing that one. Okay. That does sound pretty interesting. Um, where can we find that, that story that on Amazon? Well, um, it's not on Amazon. I'm still working on it. So uh, okay. I'm hoping to finish it up in the next couple of weeks. And then, um, I am an indie author. So usually I just, you know, I finish it. I have a couple of people read it and then I put it on Kindle, but this one's a little different. Um, like I said, I have no aversion to having a publishing contract if it's the right one. Um, and I've had lots of offers since I've gotten a little more popular, but just none of them have inspired me. But there is a gal, um, who works at shadow mountain, uh, which is the people that published, uh, fable Haven and, and, um, 11 thumps and a bunch of really good stories. And she and I are friends, and, and she's wanted me to have something at Shadow Mountain forever. And I would, I would love that, too. They're cool people. So, um, so she's kind of got first dibs on this one. We'll see what happens. Nice. Okay. So if, we, if one of our listeners is interested in, in reading your books, which one would you recommend that they start off with? 
It, it really depends on the listener because, you know, my Western historical fiction romance are not going to be, you know, the same people who read horror. And that's why I have a pen name for that one, by the yeah. way. But, Tell us a little um, bit more about that one. We talked uh, about it a little bit at Comic-Con. I was, I was intrigued, but tell us a little bit more about that. Is that oh, the historical, doing? the romance stuff? Yeah, I'm, it's it's still there. Um, it's fun. It, they're, they're really short books. Romance readers have have uh, read a lot very short books nowadays that's kind of the market so um i just kind of hopped in on that and it, it's fun i i always said i wouldn't write romance but the fact of the matter is again i'm i'm in this i'm not an artist i'm just a guy who's making a living hopefully as a storyteller and and so i don't see myself as someone who's like following my artistic muse and i have to be true to myself i'm true to mostly what will put food on my family's table and i saw that there was this huge market for romance and i thought hey maybe i can steal some of that money and um and so i wrote these romances and i was really glad i did because it gave me a real appreciation um for that genre it's a very hopeful genre i mean to be a romance technically in today's market they require an hea which is a happily ever after and that's a that's a kind of cool thing. I mean, there's not a lot of genres that still exist today where they go, and the good guys have to win. And, but I think we need those stories. Um, so my stories are called the Baxter Homestead Romances, and they're all um, set on or near this uh, big farm ranch in Texas called the Baxter Homestead. And the people there have adventures and fall in love and you know, the, the boy meets girl and then the boy, they don't lose, the boy doesn't lose the girl because in romances, they both kind of, they love each other through the whole thing. It's not a question of, oh, does he really love me? I mean, there might be a little of that, but, but more, I think romances are about, he loves me, but I've misunderstood something. So I'm worried about whether he does or not. And, <laughs> um, you know, and, or somebody, you know, the good, the good guy, goes off to make his fortune and a bad guy comes in and steals the heroin and uh, and um yeah. and so they're they're very formulaic in a lot of ways be in the terms of there's requirements they are very strictly structured um but i i have a lot of fun writing them and i've i've really come to enjoy that little world and and existing in uh you know 19th century america is very different from say, my novel Strangers, which is about a family that wakes up one morning and finds out that every door and window in their house has been sealed. They're entombed in their own house with a crazy person who wants to have some life lessons with them. That is, <laughs> you know, it's a very different dynamic. Yeah. And then Sword Chronicles, which is kind of my epic fantasy, um, that takes place in this world that exists on top of five mountains where, you know, children are born with these amazing magical skills that can shape the face of the empire. And, um, and one of them is a girl who was born in a slave kennel. And so she becomes this premier assassin. And, and so if I'm pitching strangers to you, I ain't going to pitch the Baxter homestead to you because <laughs> yeah. you just aren't that person, you know? Right. Um, so it, it really depends. What I say to people is my name's my first name is Michael Brent and it's all together. And if you Google that, you're going to get my website and you're going to get my Amazon page. And if you have that name and if you have Angelica Hart, which is my, my nom de plume for Western romance, you can look at my books yourself and one of them will be something you like because I've written something for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of choices. If you like horror, Western, <clears throat> science fiction, 
fantasy. Yeah, yeah you do it all. Yeah, I ha- well, I have an attention deficit issue, you know. <laughs> so do you have a, a dream project that someday, you know, I'm going to do this? Oh, jeez. Um, no, not, I mean, there, of course there's things that I would love to see. I mean, the, um, that Stranger's uh, story that I just mentioned, uh-huh. that's a book. It's also a movie, and it's been optioned. The script has been optioned, I don't know, four or five times. Uh-huh. And I would love to see that as a movie. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I'm actually working on a screenplay of the first uh, of my zombie apocalypse series, and that would be great, except for the problem with that is we'd have to get Michael Bay to do it, and he'd have to be on amphetamines the whole time because it's a, <laughs> it's a very, very, very fast-paced movie. And so that's another one of those where I don't spend too much time on it because, I mean, it's, it's going to be a zombie movie, which they're kind of on the wane, and it's a big-budget movie. It destroys a major city, and the, the people in it literally are climbing through pieces of buildings that have blown up and landed six blocks over. Um, and so... I can't spend too much time doing those projects that I just kind of want to do because um, I got to spend my time where money is going to be made and where I can find fans and, and get them, you know, con them into giving me their, their money. Um, So I I don't have a dream project. I have a constant influx of ideas and, and, um, and that's really a nice thing to have. So I'm less worried about dream projects than my big problem is, all right, I just finished a book, so I've got to market it. I've got to do the, you know, podcasts like this one and interviews and, and I've got to do the cover cause I do my own cover design and, and I've got all these things to do. And then I've got 12 ideas on deck for my next book and I got to figure out which one of them it meets at the sweet spot of really awesome and exciting for me and something that I think other people will give a crap about. Yeah. So how, how do you go about doing that? I mean, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. I know it's kind of, a little switch from what we were talking about, but you know, when you're coming up with a book to write or an idea to go on, I mean, you you said you have a lot of ideas coming in. Do you just write anything and everything down? Do you, you know, or do you look at it objectively like, yeah, that's a good idea, but that's a little bit crazy and it's not going to go anywhere. So I'll just move on. Oh, it's very much the second. Uh, I mean, I have ideas that fly in and I do write them down. So like, if you look at my, my texting, for instance, there's a whole section of text from me to me and they're all like wouldn't it be cool if you know rubber ducks took over the world wouldn't it be interesting if we had a robot penguin in every house you know like there's all these just random thoughts and i'll be driving through and i'll have the you know my just doing my life and i'll have a weird thought and i'll pull out my phone and dictate it to myself and and most of those go nowhere because in that moment i go wow it would be cool if we had a robot penguin but then when I think about it, I'm like, it, it would be cool, but not in a book or movie way, just kind of in a, hey, everybody, check it out. I've got a robot penguin. That's not a great movie. Um, and so I do have all these ideas that fly in my head, but very often when I'm gearing up for my next book, what I'll do first is I'll look through. I have, an, I have a file of ideas that I actually, I'll write the really good ones down in this file. And so when I'm getting ready to do a new book, the first thing I'll do is check the idea file. If there's something there that I really want to do. Um, and if there is, then it moves forward to the next question, which is, will people like it? And, and that's a very tough question to answer. Um, because I'm not other people, you know, I'm just me. And if I, I came up with this idea, so obviously it's fascinating to me. 
Um, but I have to think, you know, is there a market for that? I'm not ever going to write a freaking Twilight book, you know? I mean, I, I wrote a kind of a response to Twilight. I wrote a book called Hooked, um, which is now called Peter and Wendy. I, re- I re- retitled it. Um, and in it, Peter Pan is a vampire who kills all of the Wendy line, you know, so that he is now after the great, 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 whatever granddaughter of the original Wendy. And it's a really cool book. And it went nowhere because it came out right as Twilight, as everyone was getting sick of it. And, um, and even though it's a totally different concept, people look at it and they go vampires. No, thank you. So, you know, even though I loved the book and I would love to have been it, have it seen turned into a series, but I just can't spend that time on it. So, um, you know, I look at the marketplace and I look at the stuff I've done and I look at, at, um, things that I like to read and, and I think about conversations I've had with my fans and I, and it's just kind of like trying to put all that together into, okay, yeah, the, the people are like this. Um, for a large part of me, it, it's very often, it comes down to, would this make a good movie poster? Um, because that's kind of how we have to sell books today as we sell them sort of like movies. We have to explain them in 10 seconds. There has to be a good trailer, you know, book trailers are a thing now. And, um, I don't do book trailers, but the, the point of it is, can you turn this movie into a good book trailer? Because typically if it's that kind of a story, it's going to have a good chance in today's market. Yeah. Okay. So we talked a little bit about Marvel and Star Wars and a little bit of DC if you were given the chance to write a story for one of these big franchises, would you do it? Why or why yes. not? <laughs> um, I would do it because that's one I have, I have one in my head um, okay. that I've had forever. It's a Batman. I, I wouldn't write necessarily. I could, I would love to write comic books. That's cool. It's all stories. I just, I'm a storyteller. If yeah. I can write video game stories or movie stories or book stories, I'm happy. Um, but I have an idea for a Batman comic um, in which Batman is an old man who's got Alzheimer's. <laughs> and um, not, you know, not as a funny thing, but as where do our heroes go when we die? Okay. And in that story, um, he is in an institute. I mean, he's bat frickin' man. And that is not a normal Alzheimer's patient. That's somebody who can kill the staff. And uh, if he's having an episode, and so they have to create this special, like maximum security thing for him um, as an old man, and and just kind of talking about what happens with our heroes when we're done with them, and then we kind of box them up and put them in a little cage and push them out of sight, and and asking questions about how long our heroes really matter, and and what makes a hero. If a hero can be a hero in the moments where he's not actively beating up the Joker. Um, and, and I think that would be a really fascinating question. And I have a lot of really cool scenes in my head that are very, you know, cinematic or would make good panels, I think. So I'd, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's inter- interesting. I mean, cause with comic books and even the comic book movies nowadays that, you know, the characters never get old. They're always yeah. young and they're always, yeah. and that was, that- well, especially in that universe. Yeah. Spider-Man's not going to get old, yeah. right? And, uh, uh, you know, sneaking yeah. Flash will just run back in time and be young forever. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's and that's part of because that's selling too, and that's fine, but that was part of what made the Dark Knights uh, graphic novel so astounding was Frank Miller deciding, hey, what if Batman was over the hump? What if he was 50 and retired? You know, what would the universe be? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, who's your favorite author besides you? Hello? Did we lose you? Are you there, Mark? I'm here. I think we lost callings. Hmm. Yeah. Shows that you get disconnected. Okay. It's Adam back. Just kind of run to wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't have a ton of time. But, uh. Hey, you guys there? Yeah. We lost you there. There we go. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good a good time. I'm I'm actually got to wrap this up. My wife wants to feed me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So, just one more question: Who's your favorite yeah. author besides oh, yourself? Crap. Oh, I am not my favorite <laughs> author. There's no way I'll ever be even in the top ten. Um, well, you know, I know what I write, and that's not interesting to me. People go. Oh, what's your favorite book? And my answer is always, it's the one I just finished. Yeah. Because I'm done with it, and that makes me happy. Um, but my favorite author, geez, I don't know. I, I mean, I love so many of them. Stephen King, obviously. Dean Koontz. I will always love Dean Koontz, um, partly because I think he's an astounding craftsman. Um, I think Stephen King's a better storyteller. I think Dean Koontz is a better craftsman. Like, if I was going to sit at a campfire, I think I'd want to sit with Stephen King. If I was going to learn how to write a book, I'd want Dean Koontz telling me because that dude knows the technical everything. Um, and he's a super nice guy. I've corresponded with him over the years. I've talked to him a bunch of times. Just like I mooched into a, you know, a bit of a friendship through my dad, and I had no shame about it at all. <laughs> um, so those guys are awesome. Orson Scott Card is one of my favorites. I mean, I read Ender's Game like a lot of people when I was very young. And I revisit it every, you know, every decade. I'll reread it and and um, re-enjoy it. And then from now on, every decade, I'll reread it and shake my fist at the DVD sitting on the shelf, you know, being like, why did you suck so bad? And um, So I like them. The Dune. I don't like the Dune series particularly, but the Dune, the first novel, Dune, you know, is an astounding piece of work. Um, I love... Asimov, Heinlein, I mean, like kind of the great 50s and 60s golden era sci-fi people, although I think we're in a golden era now. Yeah. Um, and I have a lot of personal friends I love to read. Uh, Larry Korea, who's very well known for the Monster Hunter International series, which I find funny because um, he started a book with a, a novel, Son of the Black Sword, and I think it is so much better than anything else he's written, and that's kind of like his smallest book. And um, so Larry's really fun to read. Dave Butler, um, is a friend of mine, DJ Butler, who he's the one I said, he's going to explode in popularity. He is so good. Um, and he's got, I don't know, he's got like nine books in the pipeline as far as being published with major publishers. So I think one morning everybody's going to wake up and his name's just going to be everywhere. Um, so I, yeah, if you ask me like one person I love the most, I couldn't tell you. I just, I couldn't cause it depends day to day. Yeah. It depends on the mood and where yeah. you're at yeah 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 well we want to thank you for coming on to our show uh michael brent callings and uh it's good catching up to you we usually talk at least once a year at comic con salt lake comic con <laughs> so are you gonna go this year um i don't know it's still up in the air i kind of took a step back from the conventions last year just kind of slowed down i've got 
I'm actually going to be flying out to St. George next month because, you know, they're paying me to come down and, and sound like I know what I'm talking about at this literary festival or something. But, nice. um, I, you know, I'm not running around quite as much this year. So I don't know. I mean, I definitely want to on a personal level because I love the people there, like we said, and I love seeing people like you and, um, you know, seeing whatever you're going to dress up as. I haven't <laughs> seen you in forever. And for those of your listeners who don't know, Justin Brady is like 19 feet tall and he walks up dressed like, you know, like a, a Jedi from the the prequels. And I'm going, oh my gosh, it's the Ennis ball. He's shaved bald. So I'm like, oh my gosh, it's giant Mace Windu. It was the funniest <laughs> thing for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was like seeing people like you and, you know, other friends. But um, it also just has to make sense from a business perspective of, you know, am I going to make money off of that decision in the long run? And so it just depends. I don't yeah. know. I'd like, we'll, we'll leave it at, I'd like to. Yeah. Well, if you're there, we'll swing by and say hi and take some photos. Awesome. Like nice. we always do. But uh, we <laughs> want to thank you for coming on to the show. And people can find you on Facebook, right? Facebook.com. Yeah. You have a yep. fan page. Yeah, it's Facebook.com slash Michael Brent Callings. Um, but like I say, just go to Google and Google Michael Brent. Um, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-B-R-E-N-T all one word and you'll get my stuff right on the top of it if you google Michael and then a space and then Brent you're going to get an underwear model um, and that's not me I just wanted out there that that is not me because I oh, am yeah. not I was I just looking, and I was like, right, "Wow, right. this is, this is Michael yeah, Cohen." Yeah. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Super attractive. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So definitely check out his books on Amazon and uh, Kindle. Uh, I've started reading the the Sword Chronicles, and it's it's engaging, it's fast paced, it's interesting, and I'm gonna finish it up here in the next week, hopefully. So nice. I recommend it wholeheartedly to check out his books. <laughs> go to his Facebook page, interact with him there. He's always posting. You're always posting stuff, right? And yeah, get yeah. listener reader feedback. So yeah, I li- and I do do that. By the way, if you go to my website, you can sign up and and get a free book. My website's written uh, written insomnia, so it's books that keep you up all night. Writteninsomnia.com, and uh, you go there, you can get a free one of my books just for signing up. And then I send out you know early offers, and occasionally I'll say, hey, I've got a new book. Uh, first 20 people get to read it ahead of time go you know and, and so yeah if you connect with me on social media I try and make that worth your while cool yeah so thanks for joining us on this episode of the credulous nerds and uh, we want to thank our guest once again and we'll we'll catch you next time all right sounds good you guys thanks so much yep thanks, thanks. <laughs> bye bye